Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time, the Roast of Tom Brady, a Netflix live event happening May 5th Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. It's the Autosport Podcast. We mark 30 years since the death of Enzo Ferrari and ask what made his team the greatest of all. Tuesday, August the 14th, marks 30 years since the death of one of the most influential figures in the history of motorsport, the legendary Enzo Ferrari, a man so shrouded in myth that in 2018 it's harder than ever to separate the fact from the fiction. I'm your host, Ed Straw, and joining me for this special podcast first is the man who literally wrote the book on Enzo Ferrari, Richard Williams. Now, Richard, Enzo Ferrari, a life, I think it came out in about 2001. Yeah. Having recently reread it, I could have to say it's a must for anyone with any any interest in the man. But Thank you, Ed. Why did you tackle such a, a challenging subject? Well, I'd grown up um, sort of adoring red cars, basically, as a kid, whether they were Ferraris or Maseratis. And Enzo Ferrari was such a, an extraordinary and magnetic and multifaceted character, never mind his achievements. Um and there have been many, 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 many books about Ferraris um, and one or two about the man himself. But I thought there wasn't one that told or attempted to tell the whole story. So that's really why I tackled it. It does come through, going through it, how much it, it is almost an attempt because there's so much myth, isn't there? And unraveling that must have been a nightmare to try and work out what's real, what's what's correct, and also understanding how the things that were not necessarily accurate fitted into the character of the man, his mindset, what he was trying to do. Yes, an enormous amount of m- number of myths grow up. And of course, he uh, wasn't um, about to discourage many of them because they added to the to the mystique of the company. Um, that's really why it's still with us today. And, uh, you know, why it's the thing, the one factor that people feel that Formula One can't do without is because it carries that weight of legend and myth with it. Well, my second guest obviously came face to face with that that myth uh, on occasion. Autosport legend Nigel Roback. What what was your experience of of dealing with Enzo Ferrari? Which, although he was in his reclusive years when you were covering well, Formula I, One, I you, would, did, you did occasionally run into him, I believe. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say I exactly dealt with him, Ed. I mean, I I, I met him a few times. Um, 
because in you know in those days in the in the sort of seventies and eighties, they used to be quite well not that frequent, but you know occasional press conferences at um, at Maranello. Um, and of course, you know, it was one of those things you couldn't miss. Um, I do remember the first time I met him. I mean, I can, I can remember, I, I mean, I can't say it's happened very often to me in my life, but I was, we, I was in a queue with three or four other people waiting to uh, shake his hand to meet him. And I remember feeling I was sort of trembling. Uh, and I, Enzo Ferrari apart, the only person I can ever remember having that effect on me was Fangio. Um, so you did, there was something about him. I mean, we, we actually in his presence, I mean, his charisma, you know, we, we use that word so lightly, but boy, I mean, it, the, it, the, the aura of, the, of the, the man was, you know, was extraordinary. Anybody, I'm sure anybody who was, who was there with me or met him at any time will, you know, will tell you the same. Even God knows, even talk to any of the drivers, you know, going for their first interview or whatever you want to call it, and they'll, they'll tell you just the same. Um, he, he definitely seems to have cultivated that. that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I mean, that was the, you know, all part of that was this, uh, you know, if you had an appointment with him, you, you, would, you would reckon probably you might get to see him within an hour of the appointment time, and he would just be um, his uh, long-time secretary, Brenda Werner, told me he'd just be sitting there in his office grinning knowing that there was some belgian prince or somebody waiting outside for may i please have you know can i give you a lot of money to buy one of your road cars and, no you know when i have time so that that was all part of it i mean and it worked sounds almost like some kind of sort of mafia boss with a sense of humor <laughs> yeah but i i think i mean I, I, maybe it's an Italian thing. I, mean, I remember John Sergius telling me that was his experience of meeting Enzo. But he said uh, earlier than that, when he'd been when he was when he was when he was uh, on bikes, meeting Count Augusta was exactly the same. You know, it's sort of it's it's a kind of you know Italian protocol, if you like. So, well, before we get onto the man himself, let's just start at the end. Effectively. The famous race after his death was made public. I don't think it was the first Grand Prix that was held, because of course Enzo Ferrari's death at the age of ninety wasn't made public. I think until after his after his funeral. But the nineteen eighty eight Italian Grand Prix, which of course was the one race the all conquering McLaren MP four fours of Prost and Senna didn't manage to win mm. in eighty eight, with a little bit of help from John Louis Lesser, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. what was it like being there, given the magnitude of what had happened, the loss of Ferrari, and then? It all coming together for this this one two with with uh, Gerhard Berger leading home Michele Alboreto. Well, it it was extraordinary. I mean, it was you know it always is an extraordinary thing to be at Monza when a Ferrari wins. Um, but that particular year, yes, it was uh, it was it was. I remember there was a, there was a real potency about about Monza. There always is, but it, it seemed even more um, acute that year because the old man had so recently gone. I remember you know it's just the the banners in the uh, in the, the grandstands opposite the pits, which are always, or you know, ninety five percent anyway, always for a driver, usually whoever's you know the Ferrari number one at the time. Uh, but I remember that year there were loads and loads and loads of banners all for Enzo. So uh, it was it was a very potent occasion, and when and and of course the thing about it was. They weren't going to win that race, and it wasn't until, as you say, you know, Schlesser um, got in the way, and Senate was too impatient, and uh, and suddenly there they are, one two. It was, it was almost sort of, you know, hard to take in. Two laps from the end, wasn't it? It was, yeah, so, yeah, yeah, know, yeah. yeah no, that's right. I mean, just an extraordinary explosion. thing. Yeah, yeah. And Schlesser was only driving because Mansell had tonsillitis or something. Uh, whatever it was that particular yeah. week. And of course, he was he was <laughs> the second choice fill-in, wasn't he? Because Brundle had been in, but I think he couldn't do the. I think Brundle Monza. did Spa, didn't he? As far as I remember, yeah, yeah. Probably um, wasn't wasn't the time to be in a Williams, so probably not willing to <laughs> throw away well, the commitments. No, better than now, mind you. But uh, no, <laughs> that's true. That's it. <laughs> but I guess Richard the the feeling of that race and the, the impact that Enzo Freud had on the Italian consciousness, but let alone a racing fans, it almost feels like the significance of the passing of a Pope or something like that. It must have had that, that almost holy 
Yeah, I'd say a bit more than a pope, I'd say myself. Popes come and go, you know. But, uh, but Enzo Ferrari only comes and goes once. Yeah. Um, so, yes, I think it was, uh, it was a, a, a huge thing um, in, the, in the life of, of Italy, for sure. Um, but what's interesting, though, he, he died on a, an August a holiday weekend for Augusta, and he was buried... The ne- pretty much the next day in a very small ceremony with only five or six people present his surviving son and his granddaughter and um, a couple of his old cronies Sergio Scaglietti, the bodybuilder and um, Luigi Bazzi, his old engineer friend one or two others, that's all and then um, 30 days later they had the formal mass in Modena um, which was just a half-hour ceremony. Of course, everybody turned out. You know, there were a lot of great and good and there. But um, it was only half half an hour ceremony, formal, quiet, no tributes, no speeches, just, you know, just a mass and that was it. He does seem to be somebody who, or well, one of the reasons why he's so difficult to get a handle on, he seemed to have quite a tight-knit group of people he was close to that was established quite some time before of his later years. They, they, a lot of them seem to have come up through the, the sort of pre-war years and maybe very immediately after when Ferrari, as is, was really establishing itself. I mean, do, do you think that was just, was that something he deliberately wanted? Was that just the kind of person he was? He didn't make make close friends easily? Mm, I think I think it's partly an Italian thing. Um, but also he, when he began to create his company in the late 20s, um, he'd already he'd already had an association with Alfa Romeo, and he'd pointed a couple of people Alfa's way, um, Sivoci, a driver, and Batsy, the engineer, because Alfa's weren't at that point weren't doing terribly well, and they needed some better people, and he knew better people, and he introduced them to Alfa. And uh, my feeling is that that's the point at which he realised that he had a, a gift for assembling a team of people who could work together in, in the long term. And that's what happened when he, when he started the, the Scuderia, of course. He, he brought people together. And his other, the, the sort of associated element of genius there was that he, he was pretty much the first person to put a team together with a lot of assistance from other companies, tire companies, spark plug companies, oil companies. Um, he, he, you know, now you look at a, at a Formula One car and you see all the sponsors' names, if they've got sponsors at the moment, um, or, you know, all over the cars. And, and really Ferrari was the, the first to do that, to enlist the aid of people, you know, on the basis that he was going to be a success and that they could share in that success if they, you know, came in with, with some financial contribution. And of course, at the time, he was doing that when he was first associated with Alfa Romeo. He was initially there as a driver. That's often forgotten, Nigel. That he Absolutely, he was yeah. a he wasn't a top ranked driver, but no. he was a he was a, a serious he sort was of competent. second second he was, tier yes, performer. He was, he was competent. Probably, as Jenks would say, with some contempt. I was Jenks had a wonderful way of of rating racing drivers, and someone who was sort of mm, okay. He always used to just say, "Yeah, Jack Furman." so maybe maybe you could put enzo probably about there yeah very but, competent very reliable but by his own admission you know not not as quick as he as he anybody as he who, to be. anybody who can come second in the target floor well, in, uh, in 1920 as it was has, has my my admiration <laughs> absolutely I have to, I have yeah, to yeah say. no it's true it's true but of course, Richard, he did have this this big break. He won the Copper Cherbo, which is another great road race. That's probably his most high-profile triumph. There were some other uh, minor victories over the years. But he was going to race in the, the French Grand Prix. There were only if it's very difficult to kind of, for a modern audience, to explain what the Grand Prix landscape was in that time. Mm. But there, there were a few marquee sort of great mm. Grand Prix, of which the French was, was one of them. And he was going to be competing in 24 in one of the, I think it was, I think there were four, Effectively, works Alphas there and Campari and uh, Antonio Ascari were the two lead drivers, and then he, he seemed to do this vanishing act that no one's ever completely got to the bottom of. Very strange business. He he just won three slightly smaller races, including the Copper Cherbo, in a, a very short space of time. 
and the copper chairboat, which is quite funny, he was in, a, in a, an Alfa RL, which wasn't an absolute top-of-the-line car, and he beat a couple of more powerful Mercedes. But he only really beat them because his teammate... Campari in a, in a better Alpha had um, had broken down very early on in the race, um, but he hid his car around the corner so that the Mercedes drivers wouldn't realise and they'd think that Campari was going to come out and overtake them any minute. So you know they weren't worried about overtaking Ferrari anyway. He won it, but then there was a bit of a break and he went to Lyon, as you say, for the French Grand Prix, practiced in the race, got out of the car and went home. Uh, didn't take part in the, in the race at all. And uh, many explanations have been advanced by him. You know, he gave several different ones. Nervous breakdowns, some kind of physical illness, um, his new wife getting on at him that she wanted him to pack up driving. <laughs> he did, after that, there was a three-year break until he raced again. And then, once again, he raced quite successfully in smaller events for a couple of years in 27, 28 29 and then I think his last race was in 1930 so he obviously wasn't taking it hugely seriously it wasn't going to be his career um, but he it was still fun so really the kind of I don't know the, the sort of having a breakdown thing doesn't really ring true to me um, he suggested that he suffered from depression once or twice in his life. I suppose that's possible. You know, we know so little about clinical depression. What we do know is that it strikes different people in very different ways. And perhaps, perhaps that's, that's what it was. I think there's a, a comment in your book where you say he also tied what happened there to the moment when he sold out to Fiat. And I think you suggested that maybe it was just a convenient way to just write off str- things he maybe regretted. <laughs> yeah, a bit of self-dramatisation as well, I think, there, maybe. I, I think, you know, the, the, when we, we analyse anything to do with Ferrari, you always have to... Um, uh, I mean, Phil Hill always said about him, you know, always remember about Enzo Ferrari... The first thing was always theatre. He said, "You know, he had a he had a genius for for a theatrical touch." Um, and Phil, you know, was like most of the people who drove a Ferrari in that era, in the in the sort of fifties, early sixties, was very equivocal about Ferrari. You know, part of I mean, he deeply admired him, but he was also very wise to him, and. Uh, of course, Ferrari had a terrible, um, there was a terrible period in the 50s. Um, and in fact, going up to the early 60s, if you, if you include the Von Tripps accident, where a lot of Ferrari drivers were killed. And and Phil said, you know, you, 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 you never really could be sure if, you know, is, he, is this an act or is he really feeling upset or, you know. Certainly, I think with Peter Collins, there wasn't, any, there wasn't any doubt. I mean, he was very, very fond of Collins, and that did deeply upset him. But otherwise, Phil always said, eh, you know. Um, he, uh, I mean, there's a, a famous um, story, which, which Richard will know, which, which um, actually Peter Ustinov told me, and, and Ustinov and Peter Collins were, were very were close friends. Collins had told him this tale. Um, and this was the day Castellotti was killed at Modena testing in March 57. And Collins, late that afternoon, Collins was actually in the office with, uh, with the old man when the phone rang uh, with the news that, you know, what had happened. And, uh, uh, and Collins related it to, to Houston off that. So he said, you know, so then so took the phone and said, oh, oh, no, no, you know. Castellotti morto, ah, and then uh, a, a, a ten-second pause, and then e la macchina, <laughs> and uh, so so Phil said, you know, uh, as I say, Phil, no, I don't think anybody ever had Ferrari's number better than Phil Hill, uh, and he said the thing about Nenso was, you know, you never quite knew what he was feeling. And uh, I mean, after the, the Potago accident in Emilia Emilia, which was a, a terrible, terrible thing, obviously, where the spectators killed, including children. It was a ghastly accident. Um, and that was when, of course, all kinds of 
serious forces weighed in, including the Vatican, saying racing should be banned and Ferrari was a disgrace and killing all these young men and all these, um, you know, spectators and so on. And, and Phil said, you never quite knew then. He said, Ferrari would be, he, he said he, he wore a bathrobe for about five days and he didn't shave. So he had five days of beard and all the rest of it and he looked awful. And But, but Phil said... It, it certainly worked. I mean, it, you know, it had a dr dramatic effect. He was photographed like that, and people were sort of, wow, you know, the old man, he really is taking this terribly badly. And Phil said, but it was always at the back of your mind, a sort of, boy, he doesn't miss a trick, does he? <laughs> you, you have to remember as well, this was a man who'd lived through two world wars. You know, he'd and seen, he just got through the, the first one. He did, he? yeah. Um, he did. Um, I think when he was... Recovering from whatever he had, I can't remember now. Was it pleurisy? Pleurisy. Well, seems, seems uh, you know, he, he, he could hear the sound of coffin makers outside hammering <laughs> bits of wood, planks of wood together. That's um, uplifting, that isn't might it? change your attitude <laughs> to life and death. Um, his brother died early, his father died. Then, you know, he started racing in the 20s and lived through the 30s when he saw people like Antonio Ascari and Giuseppe Campari, who were close friends, close friends, uh, killed. And that's, you know, that's what happened. Um, then he lived through the Second War and his, uh, you know, with the partisans fighting the Nazis and his factory was destroyed by bombs and so on. So I do think that gives you a slight... It, it, it doesn't make... I don't think it necessarily makes you value a, an individual human life in a different way, but it probably gives you a different attitude to the, the coming and going of, of human beings. Mm, absolutely. Yeah, no, that's true. I'm just remembering... Um, do you remember the bullet in the wall at Marinello? And some, this was in the 60s, and uh, they were they were... They were rebuilding part of the factory and uh, knocking a couple of walls down and extending it and so on. And um, a bullet was found in uh, in the wall they were knocking down. They just happened to notice it. It was embedded in the wall. And they, they was taken to Ferrari and he went and found um, Mike Parks and just put it on the table in front of him and said, yours, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Splendid. <laughs> but but you all seem to have had a an interesting relationship with drivers through uh, through many years. Um, Tazzy and Uvalari seemed to be the the standard by which every driver was uh, was judged, and seemed to be <laughs> that if if you didn't turn in a drive like the 1935 German Grand Prix, and of course Nivellari won against all odds, then then you weren't you weren't up to it. <laughs> It, it, I think it, Ferrari and drivers, it, it's, a, it's a fascinating subject. You can talk about it all day, you know, just on its own. Uh, I mean, he always said the – he always had Nuvolari up there, probably not not quite on his own, but but almost. And he always said the only other driver he ever rated at, at that level was Moss. Um, and when Sterling went there um, – in fact, just before the start of his last season, I mean, it, 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 this is one of the great what-ifs of, of motor racing, isn't it? Um, that, that There was a deal for 1962. Sterling was going to drive a Ferrari in dark blue with, you know, run from the factory, but at the races actually operated by Rob Walker's team. I mean, can you imagine that? <laughs> and and, and, and um, Ferrari, when Moss went there, Ferrari essentially said, um, you know, if you want me to just run one car, I will do that. Because with you, I don't need anybody else. So, But, but of so, course, 10 years earlier, he'd completely blown his chance of, of having Moss when Moss was invited down to Bari, uh, Bari to, yes, to, to, dr to drive in the Grand Prix right. there. Yeah. Turned up with his dad, you know, having, right. having come all the way from London down to yeah. Bari, which yeah. in those days, you know, was a long way. Turned up and they'd given the car to Tarufi. So there was no drive for, for, the, for the young Moss, who was no. at the beginning of his career. And he said, you know, I'm never going to drive for this jerk again. <laughs> Absolutely, yes, that's true. That's um, true. So that it took ten it years. Took ten to, years. To heal yeah, that. yeah, absolutely. He did seem to have a bit of a habit of making enemies of some drivers. I remember Jack Brabham always said he he got great uh, 
satisfaction from trying to beat the Ferraris, and I think yeah. he, he said he had a few talks with them. Yeah, but he always preferred being on the on the outside. I think that was the, you know there the, there was certainly quite a lot of that. But I think I mean there are curiosities too, like I think Ferrari's relationship with Fangio, which was never never good, and. I think that was a lot to do with with Fangio's manager. Actually, oh, Giambattoni, yes, Giambattoni, I think that's probably yes, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Who, yeah. who, who, you know, Ferrari, Ferrari didn't like drivers who negotiated too hard. No. Um, he liked to be able to tell them what they were going to get paid. <laughs> um, and uh, Giambattoni, Fangio's manager, was very well aware of Fangio's value. Of his he, time, wasn't he? He was, yeah, had already won three world championships mm. by the time they started negotiating in 1956. Mm. And I think it's because of that that, um, that, that Enzo took against Fangio. He, I mean, he complained. He got this horrible, high, tinny little voice. He, you know, funny <laughs> little bloke, you know, just didn't like him. But I, I think it was I think it was more to do with the money myself. Yeah, I think that's probably right. And it does seem there was a feeling. I mean, he made, he made lots of public comments about it being fifty-fifty between driver and car. But it always seemed to be that when there was a win, it was the car that won. When there was a defeat, it was the drivers that that lost. Um, oh yeah, I think yeah. I think I mean I, I I my impression is that 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 did change. I think I mean if you talk to anybody who drove a Ferrari in the fifties, like Phil Hill. You get this very, very cynical. Um, I mean, deeply admiring, but also highly cynical. You know, um, uh, uh, memories of him. Um, by the time you get to the sixties, if you talk to Chris Amon or Jackie X, um, fundamentally, you know, neither of them would have a word said against him. And uh, I mean, I remember Amon telling me that he said certainly. The old man, in terms of setting one driver off against another, he said, I, I, I was never ever aware of that, except in, in sort of, in little ways, like um, letting me know one day at lunch how much he was paying eggs, <laughs> which, which, was, which was more than, than Chris was getting. And as Chris was at that time very much the number one, it didn't, didn't please him too much. But he said, but he did it so well because he, 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 he he, the way he told me, the way it came out, it was as if it was a slip of the tongue. And oh Christ, what have I said now? Why did I say that? <laughs> uh, one of one of the things he did, of course, he stopped going to the races pretty early on, yeah. uh, and he sat at home and when it was on the telly, watched watched them on the telly, and waited for a call from his team manager to tell him what had what had happened. So he set up this sort of there, there was uh, there was a level of command between the driver and himself um, and some of the t team managers that he uh, that he appointed were pretty strange people and not necessarily qualified for the job not got necessarily qualified to tell the drivers what to do or the engineers come to them and of course because he relied on them for the evidence of what had happened in a race often he got a very distorted very partial point of view um, so that was pretty dangerous so in a way he, by by absolving himself of, the, of having to be at the races and take direct responsibility, he's created a whole other set. Of, and that's why Surtees' relationship with Ferrari ended, wasn't it? Because there was a, a team manager there, Eugenia Dragoni, who lived up to his name in, in his behaviour. Um, and, you know, wanted to favour Italian drivers over, over Surtees when Surtees was clearly the guy, you know, not only the fastest driver, but the guy who had better technical ideas than almost anybody else at the factory at the time and got the sack yeah no i mean uh, and dragoni is what is a, is, a, is a mystery in himself because he was actually a a, a perfume manufacturer mm. he was a very rich man he was never actually paid a cent by ferrari um but so how this guy who makes perfume and, and a lot of money from it how he suddenly becomes the team manager of ferrari no one quite understood Surtees always said, I never found out what he had on Enso. <laughs> I said, and I worked and I worked and I worked no. trying to find out. Everybody I could think of, I asked, and he said, I never did get an answer, but for sure there was something. Now, of course, they have people who make cigarettes running the team. Well, indeed, absolutely, yes, they do. Yes, 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 quite right. Yes, yes. And in fact, if you think about it, I mean, he did do odd things 
like in 67 suddenly appointing Francolini who was you know the leading Italian journalist of the, of the yeah. time suddenly was the Ferrari team manager only lasted a year but well where did that come from you know yeah. why you know a bit like Frank Williams sacking Patrick Head and appointing you <laughs> yeah actually it's yes, very similar to that <laughs> or me actually or, or one thing Richard one one great thing in Enzo's favour as far as you and I are concerned is um, my my old old friend Pino Alievi was always said no one ever revered journalists more than Ferrari no because of course he, he started actually re- he did revere the profession isn't that interesting and, and in fact his the first thing he did in terms of any kind of a career was write a football report for the Gazzetta della Sport yeah. Yeah. you know when he was yeah. a teenager yeah. uh, he wrote a report on the local yeah. team and you know that was a, an important yeah. thing for him so he did he had a as you say a kind of reverence Sometimes justified, sometimes misplaced for journalists. (laughs) There's this great quote, I think, Richard, you've uh, quoted in your book about him describing himself as an agitator of men. And we maybe see that in the way he tries to operate the politics with the drivers. But that seems to have been his great skill because he wasn't wasn't an engineer. He wasn't designing the cars, but he was, he, he would sort of, assemble the right people push them in the right direction and he did have some strong opinions on on sort of what might be called the big picture engineering engine configurations and that there's there's moments where he's insisted on on certain things so so what do you think he actually brought that made him so effective and going all the way back to the Alfa Romeo days when he was running a as you said a very successful racing team both in the, in the way it operated and various commercial deals that were going on oh a profound gift for organizing and inspiring um, and of course exasperating and infuriating people at some, sometimes as well but that's that was part of it but for organizing for pulling people together you know right from the beginning when he got Batsy and Vittorio Llano um, who he got to Alfa Romeo I think uh, in in the 30s and then you know all the way up to Mauro Forgieri you know who was a very very young engineer when he was put in charge of, of, of redesigning the team, when he, redesigning the cars when the team was at a very low point. Um, he was pretty good at trusting young people too. Um, you know, Luca de Montezemolo, um, who came along in the mid-70s, um, was a protege of, of um, Gianni Agnelli, who'd bought f- Ferrari for, on behalf of Fiat and was very close to Ferrari. Uh, but, you know, Ferrari was willing to take Luca de Montezemolo, who was in his 20s, make him team manager and, you know, allow him to work with Nicky Lauda and with Forgieri on completely rebuilding that, that team and turning it from a, an absolute disaster zone into a world championship team in very, very short period of time. He was great at that. Um, he wasn't... It, he wasn't, you know, hands-on in, in, in saying, oh, we need pull-rod suspension or push-rod suspension. You know, he absolutely wasn't and never pretended to be that kind of person. You know, he did make some remarks about, you know, whether the engine should be in the front or the back, you know, because, you know, God didn't put horses behind carts. Um, but I don't think that was terribly serious. You know, I don't think he was a... I don't think he was somebody who pushed his engineers to innovate, Um you know there are there are team owners and team managers who are, who are good at that i don't think that was particularly his thing although ferrari did you know the ferrari team did invent more things than they're given credit for or the various designers did um but i think well no all he wanted to do was for them to design cars that would win he didn't really mind whether they were you know at the leading edge of you know or ahead of the leading edge of technology do you think, Nigel, that perhaps the extent of his disconnection in the later years made life difficult? Because if you look at maybe the last 20 years, you know, aside from that that period in the 70s when they were strong, winning with Lauda, there's, there's sort of one drought and then there's another one after. Of course, he, he, he died during the great one from 79 all, all the way through. The, so it was almost endless. Do you, do you think that that disconnection became destructive almost in the end? Um, I, I, not terribly. No, not terribly. I mean, I think the the, the important thing about Enzo was, um, I, I mean, people always say, oh, well, of course, you know, he doesn't run it these days. They, they, this is said about any number of people, you, you know, even now in, uh, in, uh, in Formula One. 
uh, you know, I mean, he's just he's just a figurehead now and all the rest of it. And perhaps to a degree that was that was true, but the, but the point is, there's never been a figurehead in racing like him, and that, and then, nor will there ever be again. Um, and I think he, I know he was, you know, he was a very old man when he died, but I think he, yeah, I think he's, you know, pretty much his finger was sort of, you know, on the, on the pulse to the end. I, I always remember talking to Gerhard Berger after the end of his career and asking him about. Ferrari and his relationship with him and he said he said it was the happiest time of my life he said I'd go to Fiorano I'd test the car you know have a good time he said then we'd go for lunch at one of the restaurants uh, Cavallino or the other one Montana mm-hmm. um, and he said I'd sit with Ferrari and we'd you know have a good lunch and we'd talk about girls mm-hmm. and he said and I was so young I didn't even realize how happy I was ah, lovely yeah well, I remember, you know, I remember when uh, Eamon telling me when he was there, uh, he said, boy, you know, it was, certainly wasn't like driving for anybody else. And he was first, his first year there in 67, he was getting to know him. So, um, and, and he said, and, and a typical, I used to have, he used to have lunch with him most days. And a typical day, if he wasn't, if he weren't aware to race, Chris would test at Modena all morning and then he would meet Enzo for lunch. And and he said, you know, and and there was always, always wine with the pasta, always. Um, and he said, I remember one day realizing that we'd had a bottle of Lambrusco each. <laughs> and he said, and I, 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 and he said, all right, you know, I'm not saying Lambrusco is that potent, but I, I, still, it was a bottle, a bottle each. And he said, and I, I said to Ferrari, you know, we've, 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 you realize we've, we've had, and Ferrari just said, good. You go quicker this afternoon, <laughs> and he did. <laughs> I think we, we we're sometimes fooled by the the image of the dark glasses and the darkened office and the picture of his dead son in an alcove and you know the, the sort of Machiavellian stuff. We're fooled by that into forgetting that he really liked a good time. Oh. In all sorts of directions, you know. He had a wife. He had a long-term, you know, the wife was the mother of Dino. He had a, he had a long-term mistress who was the mother of Piero. Um, he had an affair, long affair with Luigi Musso's ex-girlfriend after Musso was killed, Fiamma Bresky, um, uh, who he set up in a flower shop somewhere. And, um, you know, he used to go down to the, the Hotel Real um, in his earlier days every night, and there would be lots of girls there. And um, and he liked doing things like, you know, he'd go off to Rimini down the road, you know, however far that is from from Marinello. Um, it's the nearest seaside resort, rather rather uh, nice. And they, you know, he'd go off there for a Sunday, and, and he'd take, you know, whatever car he happened to have at the time. Sometimes it would be a, a Ferrari or a Lancia, but often it would be something like a, mi- a Mini Cooper. You know, he'd, he'd have got hold of a Mini Cooper because he was interested in what it was and how it worked. And, you know, they'd go off down to Rimini for oh, the day in that. Certes yeah, yeah. um, said he was, he, Ferrari was absolutely fascinated by Alec Isagonis. Yeah. Uh, he was, I mean, he really, really you know kind of revered him um, in in his own way and he loved the mini as as richard says and he had a he had a julie had a, a, a you know a cooper s um delivered which he which he did use quite a lot and he but he said to certes one day they went out for lunch in it with uh i think with the the what was the chauffeur's name i can oh, dino yes dino, dino in the back yeah. Not the, old, the, the old chauffeur. man was driving yes yeah. and um uh, and they got out, and he said, and looked at he looked at the mini, and he said, "John, this is a car." He said, "My cars are for rich idiots." <laughs> <laughs> but it's quite a thought, isn't it? Enzo, Enzo Ferrari going on, you know, on a, spending a Sunday going to the seaside at, at Rimini um, in, in, a, in, in a mini, you know, perhaps with a picnic. <laughs> I can't imagine him changing into bathing shorts no, myself, no, but, you know, no, but no. sitting perhaps with a handkerchief on his head. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I just yeah. like the fact that he had obviously had his long-standing chauffeur, who, by all accounts, it sounds like he never let drive because he always, no, <laughs> he no, always wanted no, to just no. like his company. Yeah, yeah. But, but it's interesting that point you make about the cars. Ferrari made the road cars because because Enzo was all about the race cars, wasn't he? The the road cars were were a means. Oh, they just paid for the racing essentially. Yeah. That was a yeah. 
Yes, and they began to do that pretty early on, didn't they? Because you know, by the end of the forties, he was when he'd only been making cars for for a year or two. He was attracting you know the crowned heads of Europe, mm. Mm. Milanese aristos and people, and white Russians and all sorts of people to buy to spend ludicrous amounts of money. He, on, he on was, he, I think he he didn't really have a great interest in them. They they really were a sort of a necessary yeah. evil to yeah. you know to pay for the racing. Some of them were pretty Sertis, nice. Certes told me when the when the, for instance when the when the when the Lusso came out, which uh, has to be one of the most gorgeous cars ever ever made, uh, and Ferrari hated it because it was too beautiful, mm. and he told them to. The next one had better be more. I needed to be more more aggressive and more. So, you know, it wasn't always easy to please. The interesting thing about Enzo Ferrari, well, one of the many interesting things, is the way he managed to get what we see as Ferrari today started. So obviously, you had the you had the sort of the first Scuderia Ferrari pre-war with Alfa Romeo, which did did shut down when he went to have to go and actually work for for Alfa Alf again. And then then you have the war interrupting, and then he seems to grow. Ferrari as is out out of the war. Do we have a feeling for how he managed to do all this? I mean, he he obviously had a good talent for spotting people. He he clearly had a talent for extracting money from people for in, for investment, and there were clearly some means of of his own he had. Yeah, I think he'd made quite a lot of money in the thirties through his various you know activities with Alpha, but then he fell out with Alpha pretty badly just before the war, uh, partly because they got a Spanish designer, Alfredo Ricard, um, who did things that Ferrari, and didn't, Ferrari didn't like him, a bit like Fangio, I think, he just didn't like him as a human being, um, and probably wrongly didn't like his cars, I think they were quite interesting myself, but of course the, the war put an end to that and then in 1940 he really made his first car which he wasn't allowed to call a Ferrari because of the hangover from the deal with Alfa so that was called the AAV um, for the Mille Miglia, the shortened Mille Miglia in 1940 made two of those and then of course there was nothing to be done for several years while the war evolved um, but it was clearly in his mind I think you know the, the, the rupture with Alfa Romeo it was what persuaded him that um, you know his future would be building his own cars and making use of the engineers that he'd come to know very well and some of whose careers he'd promoted while he, while he was at Alpha. And then after the war, he was able to draw them all, all together and um, make use of that fantastic engineering tradition in that part of Emilia-Romagna. You know, where if you want something made in metal, you just go around the corner and somebody will make it for you. And I guess the thing that's amazing is, well, it's gone from a very small concern. I think again, keep referencing your your book. I think basically all all the land that today is the Maranello factory and the Gestione Sportiva and Fiorano, it was all kind of there in, in his possession from from then. So it, I, I guess perhaps that's one of the things about the romanticism for we've all had the chance to to go to Maranello, and it does have the feel of something that's been there for a, for a long time, whereas other manufacturers had to move and scale up and move and scale up so that that's quite an important part of it isn't it it is it's uh, i mean i think if you, uh, you go to ferrari now and it's 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 literally on it's like las vegas i mean it's it's literally unrecognizable from the first times i i went there i mean it's 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 it's, it's a sprawl now um uh and in fact when i <clears throat> first few times i went there it was it was still it was really quite a small place, yeah. you know, and uh, and dare I say it had you know immensely more uh, character than the uh, you know than the current. Um, it's almost like a town yeah. now, isn't it? It's amazing to think of going there in the seventies, and you could go into the factory and see, you know, the workers sand casting cylinder heads on the floor, you know, on a brick floor with a pile of sand. Um, just extraordinary in how, how, it's, how it's all changed from that. But as you suggest, it shows how far-sighted he was and also how extensive his resources were at that time that he was able to stockpile all that land um, with an idea of what its value to him might be one day. It does seem he did fairly well out of the war as well in terms of a, he had the the political ability to tread the the difficult lines because he, he he was a member of the fascist party, but it sounds like that was more out of expediency necessity than any particular commitment to it. But he was able to 
you know, as as everyone would have had to, they had to work towards the war efforts. I mean, it was machine tool manufacturing, and then it meant he could come out the other side, not too tied to what had gone before, and that, and then rebuild again that that ability just to. It's not luck that you're in the right place at the right time, and you've still got the right the right friends. I think joining the fascist party in Italy in the 30s was not the same as joining the brown shirts in Germany at the same time. Very true, yeah. I think the expediency is the word that you use. And certainly, you know, he kept his head down. He, he had a machine tool business. He probably made things that were useful for the war effort in some ways, you know, ball bearings or something. Um, but he also had friends like Sergio Scaglietti, who was a young friend of his, who was a teenage bomb maker for the partisans against the Nazis, you know, made bombs and chucked them as well. Um, so I think, you know, in, it, it's very hard to put yourself in the position of, of people at that time. That bit of Italy was a stronghold of, of anti-Nazism, of, of, of the Partigiani. Um, but of course, you had to be, if you wanted to survive, and if you had a business and you wanted that to survive, you probably had to be a bit clever. Oh, far from the only person, like you say, that's that's necessity. Didn't as as so many people didn't they didn't create the situation, but they're all 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 affected by it. But but looking at the at what Ferrari is today, I mean, you touched on it there with how much Maranello has changed. I mean, I must admit, obviously, I have a slightly different perspective because I wouldn't have gone there till this century. So, um, so but it, for me, it's still, it still it still kind of has that. Uh, a charm i guess is the world and character because yes you go inside and you can see there's a modern production line going on there but it still feels completely different to any other automotive manufacturer uh, i've visited so it mains, maintains that character but is is ferrari today on the racing side is it still the team that that enzo created and the same question i guess about the car company because they're kind of two different things in a way now aren't they it's difficult for me for me personally to see ferrari i mean like richard i i fell in love with ferraris as you know as soon as i could walk and i and i, and I grew up loving them and um yeah it was an obsession i mean i mean they, they the cars were always so bubbly they so they were invariably so beautiful um you think of a 67 formula one ferrari and at the same time the, the 67 sports car the p4 i mean they were both beautiful beautiful things uh, and they, so Ferrari at one time had had a, a, a far greater aura than than uh, than now. Um, I think, you know, I mean, there was a period when they suddenly started painting the cars orange, almost. You remember, rather than rather than Italian racing red, and. Um, I think a cigarette manufacturer might have had well, something to yes, do with that. Well, yes, I think you might be, you might <laughs> be right. Them the colour of the cigarette <laughs> yes, yes, that's the right. Colour of Ferrari. That's right. Um. But it's, um, I suppose, it's in my head. It's become a bit of a sort of monolith. It's a bit of a, a bit of a. It's, it's. It, I mean, when I say in the early days of my going there, I, I just thought, oh, this is ab- this is perfect. This is absolute. This is where Ferraris are made, and 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 where else could they be made? This is this is. It was quite small, um, and. It wasn't terribly modern. Um, it was absolutely quintessentially Italian, um, and 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 I, I I absolutely adored everything about Ferrari in those days. I I can't in all honesty say I feel the same way now. Nowadays, the word artisan is is applied to cheese and all sorts of things. But <laughs> yes. you know, in those day, in those right. days, Ferrari was an artisan yeah, business. Was, you know, it, it, re- it really yeah, was. It was. Um, on the other hand, you know, I, I think Ferrari today, I, I see a, a thread of continuity in the kind of the long periods of anguish that you get. Um, you know, it, 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 when there's this, you know, is is Sebastian Vettel going to win the world championship? You know, is he going to blow it? Mm. You know, it's very much the same as in the old days, you know, when Ferrari went through a bad patch. There's a, there's a special intensity to the anguish, you know, and, oh, yeah. and in a way, a special enjoyment of it. You know, the anguish is part, with Ferrari, the anguish yeah. has always been part of the whole thing, the long yes. barren periods. And you think, oh, it can't get any worse. You know, God, how long is this going on for? And then mm-hmm. suddenly, you know, whether it's, Louder or Schechter or you know whoever it is, the mm. light comes on, you know, and mm. you, know, every, mm. you know everybody's waving the flags again, mm. and um, that's still true. A little bit of a what if? Do you think? Do you think Enzo would have would have loved Michael Schumacher as a driver? 
you think he'd have respected the, um, the talent and the ruthlessness, that combination of things? Because it seems to be he either loved the drivers or, then, you know, or he fell out with them. Because yeah. great drivers like Surtees and Louder, things went wrong, but others mm. completely the opposite. Um, it's difficult to know how to answer that. It's, it is, it's, because it's, if you're talking about Schumacher, you're also talking about Jean Todd, Ross Braun, Rory Byrne. You are. You know, yeah, very true. Um, you're talking about the whole team. And, of course, that was what Ferrari, at his best, was good at. And I'm sure he would have appreciated that mm. um whether he would have warmed to schumacher that, I mean, that you know there was a different schumacher to the one we mm. saw in the cockpit mm. Right? Mm. you know there was a kind of warm family man who liked doing quite <clears throat> ordinary things mm. um uh, and ferrari would probably have found that man um, but you see yeah. there was a time when then so was deeply suspicious of warm family man wasn't there, <laughs> there was <laughs> Yeah, in the fifties, yeah, he really didn't like it. Uh, he didn't. Even, he didn't seem to like it if, if if his drivers had serious girlfriends, let alone wives, because he. I think you know, there's no question. He felt, oh, well, they're going to get too comfortable. They're going to get too satisfied. Well, it's the Cyril Connolly thing of the pram in the hall is the enemy of promise. Yes, isn't that's it? right. <laughs> yeah, that's absolutely right. And um, I mean, he 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 genuinely loved Peter Collins. I think. Um, but he really didn't like it when Collins married Louise. <laughs> he liked Collins because Collins had been so kind to Dino. Well, he was. Uh, when Dino, when yes. Dino the son, was, a- a- absolutely was right. fatally ill yeah. um, with um, muscular dystrophy yeah. and spent a long time declining before his death. And, and yeah. Collins used to go to the cinema and he'd come and sit by Dino at his bedside and tell him about the film he'd seen mm. and spend mm. time with him. So when Dino died, if I remember... Enzo gave Collins Dino's apartment to live in, mm. um, in I can't remember, it was Marinello or Modena, mm. Marinello, I think. Um, but then, of course, when he got married, quite suddenly, and decided he wanted to go and live on a on boat, boat. In, in Monaco, you know, this was a physical separation, but also I think he thought a kind of um, you know, mental distance. Something interesting, actually, about their relationship that struck me, Louise... Uh, Louise told me when 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 Dino died in the summer of '56, um, she 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 said, uh, you know, obviously, and so and Laura, his wife, of course, they were completely distraught, under, quite understandably. She she said, but dare I say it? I thought in the end it got a bit theatrical. <laughs> Laura always wore black. They went to the cemetery every day, and and she said, "I thought this is going on a bit." This, is this was Italy in the nineteen fifties. I know, that was I know, but what, what, what behaviour? Absolutely to, right. No, to, no, not to Louise King as an, no. an American actress. No, that's true. That's true. But but what was interesting was that she said, and in the end, Peter went in to see him, and in effect, sort of told him to snap out of it. You know, you're this. That this factory is here and you're not running it. You know, it's your factory and you're neglecting it and it, it is time now to go back to work, if you, you like. Know, and, the- and, 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 and she said, and I remember everybody at the time was astounded that Peter would have dared to do that, but she should have, but actually it worked. But to the end of his life, his daily routine was to get up in the morning um, and the first thing he would do when he was very old, he got his driver to drive him um, rather than driving himself to the cemetery and they'd open the gates of the family tomb and he'd go and sit inside and, you know, mostly because of Dino, but also his father was there and his mother was there. Mm. Um, and he'd go and sit there. The first thing he'd do every day mm. of his life and then go back, read the pa- go to the barber's be shaved and then go home and read the papers and have a cup of coffee and then go to the office but the first thing he did every day was go to that family tomb so that is a different way of seeing I think I mean the death of Dino was obviously was the defining moment of his life wasn't it I mean I I, uh, yeah kind of a light went out it it did yeah because uh, you know who's to say how different things might have been you know had, had Dino later been able to take over the company yes and that does seem to be the point where Enzo kind of becomes this more reclusive figure um, so I'm not sure exactly when he stopped going to races but he spent the vast majority of of his time in the last what 30 years of his life 
Well, I know, I, I mean, Phil Hill told me that he, Phil always had this theory that because this, Dino died immediately before this terrible period uh, started when, when Ferrari lost all these drivers. Well, the whole and, 58. Yeah, well, Castellotti, uh, I mean, beginning with Castellotti yeah. and then Collins and Musso and, and the Porto guy, and then, and then, and, and of course, Hawthorne and, was and, in a separate road accident. But. And, and Phil's, Phil always believed that, uh, yes, he was upset, you know, when these things happened, I mean, to greater or lesser degrees, but he was certainly, was certainly upset when Collins died. But he said, but I think it was all relative because, He'd only very recently, before that, lost his own son. So these were these were bad things happening, but it wasn't like losing your son. So there may be something in that. Do you think there was any reaction to that period where he he was under fire for the the amount of drivers who were being killed? So I think it's something like four years after the Portago jump when nine spectators were killed. I think it was four years that legal case took to be to be put to bed. And do you think that that whole reaction? affected him in any way or was it just just in the background noise for him it's again another qu- it's, it's so you hard see, to know what's going thing, on the thing is sense. I mean the Portago accident as we've said was, was appalling apart from anything else because all these spectators died including a lot of kids yeah but of course um, that was um, uh, 57 and then we had Collins and and um, Musso, as I say, and then of course Mike Hawthorne died in a road accident. And blah, blah. But in fact, the next sort of major accident in which a Ferrari racing car was involved was Monza in '61. And of course, again, were, I mean, there were 14 spectators killed. So I think, as much as anything, this is why he he came in for as much criticism at home as he as he did because it was sort of it was one thing the drivers they, they you know no one makes them do it um but when normal people just having a nice day out watching racing cars die that was a that was a different thing yeah and it probably put him on the defensive in a way um you know he was always prepared for to be attacked in a way by his own people by the Vatican, you know, and the Vatican newspaper, Osservatore Romano, which described him as a Saturn eating his own children, I think, you know, uh, you know, he might not, might take a while to recover from that. <laughs> but but it's, it's what makes Enzo Ferrari such a fascinating figure, isn't it? Because he's, people can always project their own outlook onto, onto him. I, I don't think there's any figure, not just in terms of running motor racing teams but any figure in the automotive industry who so embodies their own their own brand it's it's just a, a figure that as long as there are a motor cars as we know them today he's going to be someone who's who's remembered i think one of the clever things he did as well was very seldom to leave home you know he came to england once he went to brooklyn's but in the 20s mm. you know and after that he hardly went out i think he went to paris to a motor show once maybe in the 30s or something but after that he just didn't leave home so everybody had to go to him mm. that was the thing um you know even the pope goes out you know, to, <laughs> in the streets in a pope mobile uh, and so just never did he stayed there so everybody had to go to him that made him the kind of spider at the center of the web and a, a rather mysterious figure which he clearly cultivated was you know he didn't need dark glasses in his darkened office all the time um and he was brilliant at that you know despite being this man who liked girls lots of girls and had a very ribald sense of humor you know to like telling telling and being told dirty jokes a lot you know had a very raucous laugh you don't get that impression from looking at the sort of official photographs no, I think. no 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 i mean there was he was quite he was quite an earthy fellow yeah, deep down well i'm not sure whether we've managed to expose any great new truths about enzo fry but it's been it's fascinating to discuss the man and obviously richard williams nigel robot you're both people who have unique insights into him so it's been fascinating to hear some of the stories we've we barely scratched the surface really but i hope everyone's enjoyed listening to this uh this insight into into the great man of course uh, 30 years since his death on uh, on tuesday the 14th of august so uh, thanks very much for joining us uh, thank you Ed. Uh, richard and uh, and nigel and uh, if you've enjoyed listening to this please check out autosport.com autosport magazine out every thursday and also check out sister titles f1 racing and motorsport.com thanks for joining us We'll be back soon with another Autosport podcast.
Music is 6am by Trilo, written by Marcus Simmons. See soundcloud.com forward slash Trilo Music. redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. When Shopify says you can sell anywhere, oh, they mean it. Ooh, hold up. Just got a new sale, order fulfilled, and shipped. Inventory level's good. Whoa, Shopify doesn't mind if you're at sea level. Or on top of the world. Oh, you can run and grow your business anywhere. Climbing mountains is never easy, but at least Shopify gives me all the tools I need for my business to hit new beats. Whether you're selling carabiners or crop tops, start selling with Shopify today and join the platform simplifying commerce for millions of businesses worldwide. We've built the platform so you can keep climbing and grow your business to new heights. With Shopify, you really can sell to anyone from anywhere. This is Possibility, powered by Shopify. Start selling online today. Sign up for a free trial at shopify.com slash free 22. Shopify.com slash free 22. Shopify.com slash free 22. Internet connection required. Not available on mountaintops or seafloors. Sports Social Podcast Network. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.